Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union Pod, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. This week, we'll be talking Messi, obviously, Gold Cup, Cocaine Cowboys, Olympics, MLS, Ted Lasso, potential U.S. men's national team, coaches, players, Val Kilmer, water skiing, and so much more. But first, joining me as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this Monday, August 9th? There's something, for those that can't see, uh, different about you today, my friend. Correct. I am coming to you from Fort Lauderdale, where I am uh, vacationing with my parents who own an apartment down here having a wonderful time. Today is actually the final day of the vacation. I fly back to Los Angeles tomorrow morning, uh, but it was terrific. Just what the doctor ordered after our busy summer of soccer. Now, knowing the uh, the animal and the party animal that you are, is this, I know we're not anywhere near spring break time, but do you treat this as a type of spring break type of release or are you just kind of laying low and uh, and relaxing out there with uh, with your parents? Much more laying low, relaxing. It's funny, Fort Lauderdale used to be this prime uh, spring break destination. Over the past 20 or 30 years, they've really changed the whole vibe of the city and made it a more sort of sophisticated, mature kind of city with this attracts international tourists. And, and the whole vibe has changed. They're really making a run at Miami for the title of, you know, go-to tourist destination in South Florida. It's become a bit of a rivalry, I've come to realize. Really? Yeah. I mean, notwithstanding your your, your parents, who uh, I'm, I'm sure are, are awesome, the last thing in the world that I think about when I think about Fort Lauderdale is sophistication. Um, and and but if that's the if that's the new Fort Lauderdale, then I'm here for it. I've had a, a blast every time that I've gone there. All right. Well, listen. I hope you are having a good time. Hope you're relaxing. You mentioned it. We did take last week off, and I hope that you can forgive us. I did a little blurb right at the end of the Gold Cup to just explain to people. I called an audible at the end, and to your point, Mossy, it's been uh, basically a couple of months and two tournaments in the row uh, in a row that we have been working. Look, these are first-world problems. Um, as I said, uh, incredibly, as I say each and every time, incredibly fortunate and privileged and lucky to be able to do what, what we do, but it had just gone on day after day after day, and I wanted to make sure that at least uh, we got a little bit of break from uh, this weekly type of thing. Apologies, because certainly it happened uh, at a time when all sorts of stuff was going on. And we're going we're gonna to go deep into uh, the Gold Cup and kind of wrap up what that meant in the moment and uh, big picture type of, type of stuff. But also, um, as you know, a lot of stuff happened this week that we are going to get uh, right into. Masi, in your time off here, are you watching anything? Is there anything uh, that, uh, that is tickling your fancy out there when it comes to the television world? I did finally watch um, a couple of true crime docs, the one about Elise Matsunaga, the Brazilian woman who chopped up her husband. Yep. And then uh, the one Sophie uh, about the French woman that was uh, murdered in Ireland, clearly by that guy, Ian Bailey, who has somehow been able to <laughs> escape all these years. Um, so, yeah, I did watch those two. I've also been listening to this uh, podcast series that our, our good friend Jason Worms have recommended uh, it's it's a history podcast. It's done by uh, this guy John Meacham. It's called Hope Through History. So really enjoying that. So I've got a few things going on. Cool. You got all sorts of stuff going on. All right. Well, I, I've been I've been watching stuff too. Interesting new documentary on I think it's Amazon Prime uh, called Val. It's about Val Kilmer. And uh, for those that don't know Val Kilmer, a famous actor, he portrayed a bunch of different characters, including including Batman, and um, you know came up in the '80s. He was in Top Gun, all that kind of stuff. 
Uh, he's had some real health problems over the last couple of years and now actually uh, had throat cancer and has a, a voice box now. But throughout his, not just his career, but his entire life, he has had basically a camera with him and he's documented all these incredible things. And so it's a really interesting and a, and a very kind of creative and arty type of uh, bio doc, if you will, of this guy's uh, life in acting. And as I said, it's, it's, it's kind of magical and, and very different, uh, but I do recommend it because there's some incredible footage. You know, you know he's, got, he's got a video camera everywhere he went. You know, he's on the set of Top Gun and all, you know, all this kind of crazy stuff. So uh, it's a really interesting uh, video. I think he did a really good job there. Cocaine Cowboys, which is a continued type of franchise uh, down there in Miami, takes place, most of it uh, play, takes place down in Miami. The first one came out, I think, Back in 2006, anyway, the latest installment is called Kings of Miami. You know, that's always interesting uh, to see just the nuttiness and the craziness that was Florida and South Florida, especially when it comes to uh, the, the drug trafficking that uh, went on and all the ridiculous and horrible stories, to be quite honest with you, that went on there. Um, I watched uh, Suicide Squad, which is the new and the latest one. Um, it's, you know, it's basically a, a live version of a comic book. And, and that's exactly what it is. I think it lacks any type of meat, but maybe it wasn't supposed to have any type of meat. And it's mostly just action af uh, upon action upon action uh, with no, no dynamics, if you will, um, uh, when it comes to it. So it's, it's that, I, th I think it suffers from that. And then last one, and, and uh, it, it pains me to say this, but I'm going to say it. For those that are, uh, that are heavily invested uh, like I am in, in Ted Lasso, I, I'm not going to go as far as to say that it is Jump the Shark, but we are three episodes in season two. We already know that they've been picked up for season three, so there's a bunch of episodes coming. And I'm willing to, I'm willing to wait it out, and I'm willing to give it a chance, but there is a real fear that I have that it has already jumped the shark uh, three episodes into season two. And for those that have watched it, you may agree, you may disagree, but that's just the feeling uh, that I had. It's, it's still missing something. It still hasn't kicked off. And I think, it's, I think at times it's trying too hard. And um, maybe that's a, a normal type of reaction and, a, and an arc and ebb and flow when a, when a, when a, uh, a story like this um, and a project like this just blows up and in a, in a good way in terms of its popularity and you know the pressure to write and the pressure to continue and do all that kind of stuff and not repeat yourself i get it but i i i will still give it a, a, another chance as we go on but it was not a good uh, week and i don't think that it's been a good season relative to that first season when it comes uh, to ted lasso don't kill the messenger this is just uh, this is just how i feel but anyway watching a bunch of stuff all right listen mossy uh you ready to light this candle Let's do it. All right, because, you know, one of the big stories in sports, one of the big stories of the year broke over the last week with, with Messi. And for those that <laughs> may have missed it, maybe you were on spring break or just you weren't paying attention, Lionel Messi, who we know uh, was at the end of his contract and had finished his contract with Barcelona, uh, we come to find out that it is done. He will not be returning to Barcelona, and this is according to both him and to Barcelona, okay? Was this a surprise that he was moving and going someplace else? Not necessarily given what's happened over the last year, okay? I think that that possibility certainly had been floated and entertained, and we had talked about that. 
that it happened at this moment and kind of came out of the blue, I think that's where the big surprise is because I think a lot of us, and and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mossy, we had kind of gone through the last year and gotten certainly through the summer thinking, okay, it's going to get sorted out. We hadn't heard a whole lot about movements or anything like that. We come to find out through a very, very public and, and, and in that sense, very unique type of PR effort that this is not about Messi not wanting this to happen, and this is not evidently about Barcelona not wanting this to happen, in that they blamed the the restrictions and the regulations when it comes to La Liga as a whole uh, over there in Spain, in that it's not that they didn't want to do this, it's that in the current climate and the situation that has been created, they couldn't do it. Am I framing that correctly so far, Mossy? Yeah, absolutely. It was a stunning development. Uh, we talked about this on the pod a couple weeks ago, the fact that Messi wanted to stay and that they had agreed a deal, but they weren't able to register any new players, which Messi now counts as a new player because mm-hmm. they had allowed the previous contra- contract to expire uh, because they were in violation of uh, La Liga's financial fair play rules. So they were going to have to unload some uh, contracts before they were able to register him. And the longer it went, the story got more and more interesting. But like you said, we all assumed it would get sorted out, including Messi. He woke up that morning thinking he was going to go to the Barcelona offices to sign the contract and continue playing for them, only to be told, no, actually, we can't uh, sign this deal. And and the interesting thing is, I've been reading the Spanish media nonstop the last few days, and there's a whole other layer to this story, which is uh, La Liga has uh, struck this deal with this Luxembourg-based private equity firm, CVC. And essentially, this firm is investing in La Liga. So they're going to get a share of the revenues that La Liga generates uh, for the next many, many years. But they are injecting some cash at a much-needed time that was going to go to the clubs. And the one catch is that all the clubs had to uh, commit to staying in La Liga long term and not breaking away and forming a super league because, of course, anybody that's going to invest in La Liga, they want uh, assurances that Real Madrid sure. and Barcelona are going to be part of the league. And so uh, evidently, uh, 10 days or so ago, uh, the president of La Liga, Javier Tebas, sat down with the president of Barcelona, John Laporta, and laid out the fact that they had he had struck this deal with this private equity firm. And, and he told Laporta, if you support this, then I'll sign off on the Messi deal. Um, and Laporta initially said, fine. So that's why everybody thought the Messi situation had been sorted. Messi was informed of this. Uh, and then in the interim, last several days, apparently Laporta had a change of heart. And the Spanish media is convinced that the Real Madrid president, Florentino Perez, got a hold of him and said, wait a minute, why are you closing the door on the Super League? This is still a go. We're still going to try to make this happen and convince Laporta to not support this deal that La Liga had struck with the private equity firm. And once Barcelona did that, then La Liga said, well, then we're not signing off on the Messi deal. And here we are. So it's being framed to some degree in the Spanish media as Barcelona choosing the Super League over Messi. But but there is an element of fiscal, I guess, irresponsibility. Because when, when this came out, it, it, it sounded to me like Barcelona had, had made poor business decisions over the years. And they're not alone in that, okay? But Barcelona, Mastion Club, one of the biggest clubs in the world, spends a lot of money and has made a lot of money. But they had made poor business decisions over the years uh, that were then ex- uh, exacerbated by the pandemic. And now the chickens, as they say, have come home to roost and that they are, you know, the way that they framed it, like they said, is relative to that. 
The other side may be that in order to get their house in order, they actually, although they wouldn't ever say this, they are fine moving on from messy. And this is just a convenient way of deflecting the anticipated heat of not being able to uh, to sign messy. Now, that be, might be part of it. And absolutely what you're saying is, is, is also part of me. Everything kind of always goes back to this, this Super League and, and stuff like that. But how... How devastating is this for, number one, Barcelona, number two, La Liga, uh, and not just the, the, the recent investment that they have, but their, 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 their broadcasting partners. And, and let's be honest, one of the reasons why we watch La Liga is because of Messi. So how devastating is, is it for them? Or is it actually that devastating when it comes to what Barcelona wants to do? I mean, it's must-doing club, but nobody, even Messi, is bigger than this club, although it has to be said. He is forever intertwined, and that's why this is kind of blowing people's mind, including mine, that we are going to potentially see him now in a different uh, jersey. He has been in that incubator from a teenager to now and knows nothing else, and he has developed and evolved and been given that platform in Barcelona, and he and his family know nothing else, and we saw it in his tears that this is happening, how much it has meant to him, and, and how... He's going outside of that bubble, and he is this stranger in a strange world now. And like I said before, I'm here to see it. It's fine. But I guess I asked a bunch of questions there. Maybe you can answer a couple of them, including how much of this is a problem for La Liga and or Barcelona. Well, just to address the very first thing you said, that maybe there's a part of Barcelona that doesn't mind moving on from Messi. Uh, But if that was the case, they had a much better way to do it last fall when he filed that uh, Bureau fax, because then it would have been his decision completely. Uh, Instead, they ended up bringing him back for a season, finished third in La Liga, got knocked out in the round of 16 of the Champions League, did win a Copa del Rey. But now he leaves in this way where he wanted to stay and they're seen as essentially pushing him out the door. They are taking a propaganda lamb basting. So uh, if it was going to happen, this is not the ideal way they wanted it right. to happen. And and you're right. The chickens have come home to roost. I mean, we've talked about it in the pod many times. We don't have to go through all the different signings they've made, but the amount of money that club has thrown away the last seven or eight years has been stunning for a club that prided itself on not having to spend that much money because they had the formula. Remember La Mastia and they could, bring guys up through the youth system. And there's been this complete shift in approach in the last seven or eight years where they've become crazy spenders like a PSG or Manchester City, and it's finally come back to bite them. But as far as uh, what this means for, we'll take it one by one. For, For Barcelona, listen, they were a big club before Messi, it's true, and they might recover eventually and become a big club again. But in the short term, this is going to be devastating because it's been everything's been so built around him for the last 15 or so years that uh, you can't just <laughs> adjust from that on the fly. And, you know, we're going into a season where uh, I think they have zero chance to win uh, the Champions League. And all I'm willing to say as far as a league is that they'll be in the top four mix, which think about that. We're going into a season where the most you can say about Barcelona and La Liga is I think they'll be in the top four mix. Uh, I don't really, I'm not going to say they have zero chance to win La Liga, but I give them very small chance um, there too. I think Real Madrid and Atletico are clearly better teams going into this campaign and possibly even Sevilla, frankly. And yeah, the La Liga angle of this is interesting because this is a league that uh, for about a decade there uh, dominated the Champions League. The Premier League was the most popular league, but La Liga could point to the results in the Champions League and say, but we're the best league and we have Messi and Ronaldo. And they've already been on sort of a downward trend. No Spanish team has reached a Champions League final in the last three seasons. They lose Neymar to PSG. They lose Ronaldo to Juventus. And now they lose Messi too, which is why some people 
think that La Liga played this wrong and, and, and they, they should have been more accommodating from the start. And how could you lose your, your greatest cash cow? And, uh, and so I don't know how you feel about that. But yeah, I, I see La Liga. I mean, uh, we'll see how it plays out over the next couple of years. But to me, in, in that list of uh, ranking of leagues, we always do in terms of uh, on the field success and just overall relevance. I could see La Liga taking a real dip here and falling behind uh, certainly Syria, which I think is, is, is been gaining on them anyway. Uh, so, you know, La Liga was number one. It already sort of lost that top spot to the Premier League. And I, I could see them dropping down even further relative to Syria and the Bundesliga. Uh, what's the, what's the name of the organization uh, or the business that, uh, that is uh, injecting money and, and taking some uh, ownership? Uh, CVC. All right. So CVC, if they are a, 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 smart and prudent business structure, they would have kicked the tires and more on why this made sense. And some of it is with the existing assets, including someone like Messi. Uh, but they also would have recognized that, you know, some of the, uh, you know, the, the fiscal irresponsibility that we have talked about, that, that is not a, an, an asset. That is a problem go, uh, going forward. And so, you know, if, if they're looking at this, yes, you are losing. Yes, you are losing Messi. But if in doing all of this, everyone gets, like I said, their house in order, then collectively, maybe it's maybe it's it's stronger going forward. I, you know, I, I don't know if that's going to happen. All right. So, you know, again, uh, <laughs> it, it's hard to separate Messi from Barcelona. And, and regardless of where he goes, he will always be linked to what he did at Barcelona. I mean, they gave him that platform and he took it and he not only made them even more than more than a club uh, in what he in what he did, but he in turn was given that platform that made him arguably the greatest player ever to play the game and arguably and you know it's a, it's a hard argument, but arguably the greatest Barcelona player uh, ever. And you know that, so that's that is his legacy. We've talked about the fact that he he has lived and his family has lived, and he even talked in his outgoing press conference, which was surreal in and of itself, about you know the desire to come back and to return. And so this is much more, at least the way I'm looking at it, as a as a sabbatical. Now there there are those out there that say, well, you know, if if it really meant that much to you, you could have taken less, and you know even. Uh, even if rumors are to be believed, you know, he was he was taking less. Look, if you are an athlete, you have a finite amount of time. And yeah, you can say, oh, he's made plenty of money and he's, you know, he's never going to be able to spend all the money that he has. Well, that, you know, that's not the point. Everybody wants to be paid uh, what they what they are worth. And this is the greatest, arguably the greatest player in the game uh, today, albeit coming to, you know, the later stages of his career, but certainly demands and I think has been worth every every single penny that has been paid uh, to him. And if if Barcelona or anybody else uh, can't live up to those things, then obviously he's, you know, he's certainly entitled. But I, it, there, there's a, you know, a, a school of thought out there that that Messi bears some responsibility for all of this, uh, all of this happening. I'm, I'm not so sure. I don't know what you're what you what anybody would point to as to something that he could have done differently other than take less money. But that's, I don't think that that's realistic. And I don't even think that's fair for athletes who, as I said, have a finite a, a period of time in order to make the money that they have. And by the way, you know, I think Messi's going to go on and have a wonderful life, but it's not as if you're looking at Messi going saying, oh my goodness, this, this guy is going to be involved doing this and doing this and doing this. It wouldn't surprise me in the least if he 
just kind of not goes away, but is very, very behind the scenes. He's never been one for the spotlight. He's never been one with a a huge personality. He's never been one, at least the way that I look at it, that I see as a pep or as a Zidane type of figure when it comes uh, when it comes to coaching. And so I think he should go and make as much money as he uh, as he possibly can and then go live life in whatever fashion that he sees. Um, Do you think ultimately, I mean, we're recording this today on Monday, August 9th. Do you think it's PSG? I mean, there's only a a handful of teams and not even a handful of teams that are even able to sign him at the rate that he uh, that he deserves. Sounds like PSG, but I'm not going to take anything for granted with this story. You know, it's interesting because when Barcelona announced uh, that he was leaving, there were 24 hours there where a lot of people thought this was just a negotiating ploy with La Liga. Uh, But now after he gave that that press conference, it seems real that he is leaving Barcelona. But uh, I'm not going to take the PSG thing completely for granted. I will say, though, if he goes to PSG, I do have some thoughts on that. I don't love it from a Neymar perspective. I mean, Neymar seems all for it. He's been campaigning for the last several months for Messi to go there. Uh, and even in the last few days, from, from what you read, he's been really pushing for it. So, okay, you know, if he, if, if he wants it, then who am I to tell him that that's wrong? But, you know, it, it does make me wonder, then what were the last four years for? You know, it, you, you played with Messi at Barcelona. You won everything. And then the move to PSG was supposed to be about uh, getting away from – that shadow and, and having your own team and seeing if you can lead a team to a Champions League title. And, you know, they've come close the last couple of years. They've gotten to the final and the semis. And with the moves they had made already this summer, getting Sergio Ramos, Georgina Ronaldo, Ashraf Hakimi, uh, PSG were shaping up to be one of the two or three favorites to win the Champions League this season. And now by bringing Messi on board, I think it sort of undercuts the reason he went to PSG in the first place, because if they win the Champions League this season, it's going to be more Messi's triumph than anybody else's. And again, the perception, the narrative is going to be that, well, you see, he couldn't win on his own. He had to, again, uh, you know, share, you know, ride Messi's coattails, so to speak. So uh, I actually, as a big Neymar fan, don't totally love this from his perspective. And, And also, I do think this is going to push Mbappe towards Real Madrid. I know there's a school of thought that, no, I mean, what a statement of intent, bringing Messi, and this is going to, convince Mbappe that PSG is the place to be. They're going to have so much fun playing together this season and forming this unbelievable front three, similar to the one uh, we saw a few years ago at Barcelona with Messi, Suarez, and Neymar. But I kind of get the vibe that Mbappe wants to be the man. I don't even think he loves the dynamic with Neymar, uh, but at least they're sort of co-alpha dogs. You know, when Messi's on your team, everybody else becomes a supporting member. There's no way around it. It's, any team Messi's on, it's Messi's team. And I don't think Mbappe is going to love that at this point in his career. So I think this seals the deal that after this season, he's going to go to Real Madrid, which brings me back to the very first point I made about, you know, Barcelona fans are sick to their stomach because the Spanish media is framing this as this, as if this was this incredible Machiavellian ploy by Florentino Perez, where he convinced Laporta to not support that deal with the private equity firm, which essentially pushes Messi to PSG, which may push Mbappe to Real Madrid. So uh, if, if it plays out that way, Barcelona fans are just going to be livid. I mean, look, when when Neymar went to Ligue 1, Right. With PSG, there was this notion that this is going to create more fans and, and Liga understands that they are not high on the on the totem pole. They're still one of the, you know, the top leagues in the world, but they're not relative to Germany, England uh, and uh, and Spain. And so there was this thought that that Neymar and Mbappe, that they would draw people to watch Liga and, and in particular uh, PSG. I don't think necessarily that has happened, at least my experience. It's not as if I all of a sudden said, 
oh, now I got to watch League One. As a matter of fact, Neymar kind of was out of sight, out of mind until Champions League kind of brought him back into it. And that's where I got my Neymar fix. I know there's some that, you know, immediately migrated and that was, you know, that was the, the intention. Does this, given the stature of Messi, change the equation when it comes to P, uh, PSG and more importantly, League 1? Because keep in mind, you know, the, the knock on, on, on La Liga for years, but once it, what have they, they have hung their hat on is that two of the greatest teams in the world are in that, in, in that league and are constantly vying for first and second, with all due respect to the others. So let's be honest. That's what people around the world have been tuning in for. And those teams are populated by the best teams. Here we're talking about PSG, that yes, it's populated by arguably uh, uh, the greatest players in the world here. But it's still, and notwithstanding what happened, uh, it's still, for the most part, this one team and having a consistent competitor that not only is competitive when it comes to winning and losing, but is competitive with the sexiness and the names out there. That's not something that league has. I mean, I guess my question is, does this change the equation for you uh, or, or for the general public out there when it comes to watching Liga? No, I, I don't think it's going to change the perception of the league, which is that it's, it's a, it's a one team league, even though PSG didn't win the title last season, but right. generally speaking. Uh, but I do think PSG, if he goes there, they're going to have this sort of, dream team uh, or even Miami Heat from a few years ago when LeBron went there, LeBron, Wade and Bosch sort of dynamic where every game they play, there's going to be this curiosity factor. It's going to feel like must-see TV. So I think yeah. you are going to see a massive spike in the ratings when PSG are playing the riffraff and Liga games that you normally wouldn't think to put on. But hey, if it's Messi, Neymar and Mbappe and they're going to put on a show, then you know, you're there for it. So uh, I do think we'll see a, a, a spike in ratings perhaps from PSG games, but it's not going to elevate the overall perception. All right. Well, I mean, this is still kind of an ongoing saga. We still haven't officially had where Messi is. I mean, I know as we watch Twitter scroll uh, in real time, we see different things about it. You know, he hasn't left the building. He hasn't gotten on a flight. He is still in contact and negotiating with several potential suitors out uh, out there. And then, look, there is still the possibility that all of this gets sorted out. And who knows? It was just a <laughs> a press conference for and and watching him cry. And at the at the 11th hour, something changes. I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, and to your point, it's very, very difficult to predict. And a lot of this stuff, uh, none of us could, could predict. But it's it's wonderful content. It's wonderful. Uh, it's wonderful drama. I am here for it. And it is an ongoing type of uh, soap opera. Because really, really what uh, what this is. Uh, anything else on the messy situation, Mossy? Well, I'll just say, and this transitions nicely into uh, some other transfers we want to hit. If Messi goes to PSG, uh, yes, they become the favorites to win the Champions League. Uh, this upcoming season, but I think the two English teams that reached the final last season might have something to say about that because they have not rested on their laurels. They've made some pretty significant moves as well, if you want to transition to that. Yeah, uh, let's go to some other transfer news, uh, including, I mean, Lukaku's back, right? Back to Chelsea. I mean, this is uh, this is some amazing stuff. The $100 million man, Jack Grealish, to, to Man City. I mean, the money is... I, I, anytime someone says, oh, the money is ridiculous. The money is, uh, you know, uh, a joke. No, no, it's not. It's just, you know, what, what the market will bear. And that the market will bear this, especially in the moment in, in history in which we are living. And we've just talked about some of the, uh, the ramifications of, uh, of the last couple of years and uh, with the pandemic and all that kind of stuff. But 
There is still money to spend, and there are still teams out there that are willing to spend money. What do you want to talk about first, Lukaku? Yeah, the interesting thing here is, you know, you have these two young players, Mbappe and Erlen Holland, who I think are going to leave their current clubs. And where they go is really going to shape the landscape of European football for the next several years. And it, it seems to be trending towards both leaving next summer. Mbappe has one more year left on his deal, and I think he's going to play out that final year and then leave for free and, and I suspect go to Real Madrid, but who knows. Um, and while Erlen Holland has decided to, it seems like, stay another year at Dortmund, and then uh, in the summer of 2022, his contract, there's a pretty low buyout clause that gets triggered that summer, uh, 75 million euros, which any club, uh, any of the big clubs will be willing to pay for him. So it seems like both those guys are going to move uh, in the summer of 2022. And for any of the teams that have real aspirations of signing those two, you wondered if they were going to sit tight and, and keep the powder dry, if you will, uh, to be able to sign those guys next summer. And and Chelsea had seemed to position themselves as one of the favorites for Holland. So I wondered if they were going to do that. But instead, they, it seems like they decided not to wait and take the sure thing this summer. And they go for Lukaku for 115 million. So I, I, I suppose they're out of the Holland uh sweepstakes and we'll see who, who else emerges as the favorite and the same by the way would be true of Manchester City if they sign Harry Kane for over 100 million euros and I think that means they're not really in the mix for Holland so you, you start eliminating teams there which is kind of interesting but yeah Lukaku goes back to Chelsea where it didn't work out many years ago but remember that was again that was under Jose Mourinho who it also didn't work out for Mo Salah or Kevin De Bruyne. <laughs> so right. Chelsea fans have to be thinking about the team they could have had all these years of, um, but yeah, I mean, I listen, I, I think he'll do well there. I think this is a different Lukaku than, than was there last time. And he's blossomed into one of the best players in the world. He's just a phenomenal striker. Um, it, it's, you know, from an inter perspective, man, you, you finally get back to the mountaintop. You win Serie right. A for the first time in a decade. Uh, but you, you have these massive financial issues and they're being forced to sell players left and right. Hakimi to PSG, Lukaku to Chelsea. There could be more out the door. Lautaro Martinez possibly. Antonio Conte didn't want to stick around for that, so he left. So it's all kind of falling apart, and I don't think they're going to be able to really defend their title. I think it's it, Juventus are re-emerging as the, <laughs> the clear-cut team to beat in Italy. But yeah, from a Chelsea perspective, man, a team that already won the Champions League and was lights out the second half of the season after Tuchel took charge. The one weakness they had, because Timo Werner underperformed, was they didn't have that dependable uh, scoring, you know, center forward. And now they had Romelu Lukaku. So that, that team could be absolutely scary next season. It's amazing. It's amazing. All right. So when all is said and done, Mossy, Lukaku to Chelsea, Grealish to uh, uh, Man City, uh, Jaden Sancho to Manchester United. And you think Hang, you think uh, Harry Kane's going to go? Uh, I think there's a good chance. Yeah, he clearly wants to, and they've made it clear they want him. And it, it's going to be, you know, Daniel Levy is a tough negotiator, so it's going to be one of those sagas that might go till the end of the summer. But man, if they add now, I will say I, I like Drag Grealish. That's a bit of a vanity buy. I, I don't know that Manchester City needs to spend a hundred million euros on another creative player. Kane fits a need. Grealish is a little bit of well. A, that's why. That's <laughs> why I'm asking you. Of those four, let's just say Lukaku, Grealish, uh, Sancho, and if Kane goes, let's just assume right now that Kane goes. Of those four, who has the most successful year when, we, when it comes to June and we're talking about what happened? I would say Kane. I mean, that is just such a perfect fit. If Harry Kane goes to Manchester City, uh, that would be absolutely scary. Uh, I, oh, frankly, over you might be able to get him in the Champions League over two legs, but over 38 games, I don't know then who's challenging Manchester City for with their just ability to just turn out points. Uh, and now you add Harry Kane to that scenario. But I will say the top four in England is going to be phenomenal. 
this season because you've got City and Chelsea, the two champions and finalists, as we said, making moves, getting even stronger. Uh, United, as you mentioned, they've signed Jaden Sancho and Rafael Varane. And then Liverpool, I know our colleague uh, Keith Kosigan is very annoyed that nobody's talking about Liverpool. Uh, I mean, Virgil van Dijk is almost like a new signing. And, you know, the, the last healthy season Liverpool had a couple of seasons back, they won the Premier League going away. And now they have essentially that team plus guys like Jota and Thiago they've added since then. So uh, Keith is convinced they're going to bounce right back into that sort of form and going to be in the mix as well. So that top four in the in the Premier League could be absolutely phenomenal. Unless Van Dyke isn't the same player that he was once was. Yeah, but, you know, we'll all right, well, you mentioned those the, the top four. I didn't see you mention... Um, Norwich in the in the top four. What's uh, what's the deal there? I mean, they made a they are potentially making a a massive <laughs> signing here uh, that I think could lead them to the promised land. Uh, Josh Sargent, uh, our friend Josh Sargent, who now has played uh, several years over in the Bundesliga. Rumors are, and it might by the time you're listening to this. By the way, I'm uh, talking on Monday, August 9th Here, by the time you're listening to this, it might have been confirmed. Uh, Josh Sargent to to Norwich is that uh, is that happening? If it happens, Mossy, is this a good move? And uh, how does it change the fortunes of Norwich? And more importantly, because we always look at it from a U.S. men's national team perspective, how does it change uh, the prospects up top in that number nine position? Just continually is open, and whether it's Josh or anybody else, nobody has yet to take it. I think it's a it's a great move for Sargent. Uh, I think things had stagnated a little bit at Bremen, mm-hmm. uh, and you're wondering if he was going to have to take a step down or and but no, this is a step up. A team that's going to be in the Premier League uh, next season. So, uh, yeah, yeah, eleven million euros or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it, look, it shows I love you. It. It's great. It's a wonderful it evaluation people, for for a young player uh, and and a redhead to boot. So I'm I'm happy with uh, with that if this happens. I think the consensus is he's a really talented player that's just been in a bad situation. And so in, in scouting that team, they, they came away feeling like he, he's a he's a player that in a different situation could really flourish. And so we'll see. Yeah. Uh, I mean, look, we're going to talk a whole lot about the national team uh, in uh, later on in the pod here. But we are, as of as of today, like, what, three weeks away from the first qualifier. And so that person that is going to be uh, up top has to be, I think, you know, hope, you know hopefully is playing is playing well and from a mental perspective uh you know maybe this is the move that uh, that he needs to kind of change a change a scenery change a circumstance and uh you know instills some confidence um and uh in him coming coming back to the uh, u.s national team all right anything else transfer wise mossy uh no that's it okay cool uh we're going to take a real quick break And when we come back, we're going to talk all about the Olympics have come and gone, but they have left us with some really, really interesting stuff and uh, to look back on and to look forward to when it comes to Major League Soccer and uh, the MLS All-Star Game and stuff like that. So don't go away. We'll take a real quick break. All right. Welcome back. Uh, so the Olympics, they happened. Some people took notice. Some people didn't. Uh, we certainly did uh, on a number of different fronts and a number of different uh, uh, sports. It, it, it was it, it was not and will not be framed as the greatest Olympics ever. And a lot of it was beyond anybody's control coming with uh, coming within the pandemic, being pushed back a year. Uh, but when it comes to the Olympics and it comes to the soccer in which we watch in the Olympics, there was plenty to watch on the men's side and the women's side. Obviously, the women's side, 
featuring our women's national team, the number one team in the world, a team that is expected to win every single game and every single tournament that they play in. Uh, we'll talk about the men's uh, side in a second, but let's let's wrap up this uh, this Olympics when it comes to the U.S. women's uh, national team. Um, look, this is a U.S. women's national team who comes away from these 2021 Olympics with a bronze medal. Um, I, I've heard lots of people say bronze medal, medal nothing to, uh, you know, uh, something to be proud of and nothing to shake your head at. However, this is the U.S. women's national team, okay? And I don't think that you can argue that this was anything other than a failure of a Olympic campaign. And that is because of the incredible expectations that we have. This U.S. women's national team uh, was, is, and continues to be uh, built, and their entire brand is around being the best in the world, not the third best in the world. It's about winning World Cups. It's about winning gold medals, not finishing third, uh, and not winning bronze medals. So this Olympics was a failure relative to the teams and us when it comes to the public and the fans, our high standards and our high expectations. And so if an overhaul is needed because of this failure, this is the perfect time. If you believe that mistakes were made, this is the perfect time with World Cup uh, 2023 just around the corner and this one year that much closer, that much closer to it. Um, you know, the, I said, as I said, the level of expectation that we have when it comes to this team, I think that that makes it completely fair and justified and valid to look at this tournament and say, no, this is not, this is not good enough. And by the way, the women, because of their history of success and their high expectations that they put on themselves internally, I think that they would look uh, that they would they that they would look at it like that, and it, and as I said, it's not that you can't be proud of meddling in an Olympics. Okay, you've done something that ninety nine point nine 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 percent of human beings in history have never have never done. I've certainly and certainly have never done that. But it's very different when you are the U.S. Women's National Team relative to some team that has never done any uh, anything. And it's a little apples and oranges when it comes to that. We talk all the time in, in tournament situations, and we, we did this summer, where there were third-place games. And they are afterthoughts. They are afterthoughts for the public. And oftentimes, they are afterthoughts for the actual players involved when it comes to tournaments. Why do we even have these third-place games? And I can tell you from having played in third-place games, they, they, they suck, Okay. It can be a wasted opportunity if you don't find a way to get back to a situation where you uh, mentally recognize that there is a game to win and a third place or a bronze medal uh, game uh, game uh, game to be won. And by the way, the U.S. Women's National Team they came out and stormed through that bronze medal game and a bronze medal game, and we kind of looked at it and said, "Well, where was this team during the tournament?" So well done for picking it up and kind of showing us what you could have been through the tournament that it happened in the third place game. That's, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's the problem. Uh, Mossy, when it comes to this, uh, this U S team, uh, and head coach Vlatko Andonovsky, who was given the reins to an incredibly powerful and successful and expensive car 
that is expected to perform. Do you think that he continues on here? Do you think that he continues on? And I guess more importantly, whether it's him or anybody else, does the United States Soccer Federation and Ernie Stewart and Kate Margraff, do they use this opportunity to make some changes? Because the, the team, plenty of 30 years old, 30 year olds. And by the way, they have won in the past with 30 year olds. So it's not that this team can't win with aging players. But you look at players like, um, obviously, Megan Rapino and Carly Lloyd and uh, Becky Sobrin and Alyssa Nair and, and others that have been there that have won that. Is this that opportunity when they are going to take and say, all right, we need a cleansing, if you will, and a rejuvenation over the next couple of years in order to be back at our best as the rest of the world continues to get better and better and better. And by the way, in this Olympics, it wasn't even all of the best teams out there and teams that we would look at as true competitors when it comes uh, to the U.S. because of the way that the qualifying uh, system was. What, what do you think this team looks like going forward, Masi? Well, listen, time will tell if this was an aberration or reflective of something bigger. I'm not ready to say the world is caught up. The U.S. was unbeaten in 40-something games entering this tournament. But if you just take this tournament on its own, this was shockingly bad. I mean, for the U.S. women in any scenario to play six matches and only win two and be shut out in three of those six games, they lost to Sweden. They lost to Canada. They had that awkward final group match against Australia where they played for a nil-nil draw. When have we ever seen the U.S. women approach a game like that? And amazingly enough, the high watermark of the campaign was a game they didn't even win against the Netherlands in the quarterfinals, which was 2-2. They won on penalties. Usually a game like that, when U.S. women are functioning properly at a major tournament, that game is like the blip. You know, they win every other one convincingly, and there's, there's that one game where they scrape by and need a little bit of luck. And instead, in this tournament, that seemed to be the game that elicited the most positive reaction, where they looked like the U.S. women's national team, and they dug deep in that day and came through on penalties, and Rapino struck the winning kick. Uh, so a game they didn't even win was was sort of the high watermark of this campaign, which is amazing. So it was terrible. There's no getting around it. But I do think Vladko stays uh, for the simple fact, like I said, they were unbeaten in 40-something games entering the tournament. If they had been shaky for two years and this was the culmination of that, um, then, yeah, I think you'd probably make a change. But it just came out of nowhere. They, they had played so well under him his first couple of years in charge. And so I think he deserves a chance to prove that this was an aberration. And, you know, the, the next World Cup is right around the corner, 2023, Australia New Zealand. And, and I think he deserves to stay on. But uh, to the second part of your question, absolutely with some squad changes. It's time for some new blood there and to bid farewell to some of the stalwarts who I think uh, it's time to move on from. Yeah, I, I agree with you in that I do think that Vladko continues on. And, and I think that there's justification, uh, justification for that, despite the failure in the, in the Olympics. And you give him, if you really truly believe in him, it wasn't just for the Olympics. It's that you believe that he's going to grow uh, and evolve. And if he kind of took the path of least resistance when it came to some of the players that he picked, that's a little disappointing because you need to have the fortitude and maybe he just didn't feel comfortable enough to do some bigger, bold things. But certainly he is entitled and has the opportunity now to do some big, bold things when it comes to moving forward to your point, to making some changes. Look, the U.S. women's national team also is always going to be a focal point and a focus when it comes to. Uh, any type of tournament there that they're in, including the Olympics, with the rock stars that they are, and they transcend the actual sports, uh, the sports so much. But they also court controversy, and so there were people that were asking me, you know, about Americans because of the stances that they have taken over the uh, over the years. If there were Americans who 
we, you know, we tend to think when the Olympics, everybody kind of comes together and it's kumbaya and it's united. Well, uh, were they were there Americans that were actually hoping and cheering for this U.S. team uh, to lose? And there are and there were. Uh, and if you publicly take stances in this day and age on divisive issues, there will be neg- negative reactions and they will manifest in the way that you are uh, cheered for or cheered against, even by your own countrymen and women. As an athlete, you know, your, your success can, on the actual field, it can be seen as validation of those stances that you are taking, especially in this day and age where we have so many platforms and everybody, you know, takes these stances. So many of you will actually want, many people out there will actually want you to fail because you have a differing uh, stance on some uh, on something. It comes with the territory. These women have experienced this over the years. They are used to it, um, and they they will go on. You know, the other part is, you know, when it comes to this uh, this U.S. this U.S. women's uh, national team here is it, it's coming in the context of the U.S. men, which we're going to talk about later on, doing so well over this summer. And this back and forth between the two. And once again, you'd love to say that it's you know, one nation, one team, and there's kumbaya, and everybody wants everybody to, to do well. But there are some U.S. women's national team fans, um, and for some of those U.S. women's national team fans, the inequities that either are perceived or real, they have positioned the U.S. men's national team as undeserving of what they get relative to the accomplishments that they have. And that's why when we have such high expectations. And the contrasting history between these two teams um, has been leveraged. And so any U.S. men's national team success that is happening, especially during a summer when the U.S. women's national team uh, are not having success, can be positioned as a potential threat. So I thought all of this was just fascinating this summer in terms of these two teams that are both representing the United States and the different ways in which they do it, uh, in the different expectations that, that that we have, in the way that we play one off uh, off the other. And I'm not saying if it's it's right or wrong. It's just it's kind of it's human nature, and it's it is to be uh, expected. You know, ultimately, as I've said before, this U.S. women's national team brand is built on being the best and consistently being the best. And by the way, there's there's very few teams out there that have consistently lived up to that type of expectation and that standard. And that's why when they don't do it, it is a surprise, it is a shock, and ultimately it is a failure. So here's an opportunity to regroup and come back bigger and stronger. And by the way, if you are bigger and stronger and you do win the World Cup in 2023 in uh, Australia, New Zealand, you will have won three World Cups in the uh, in a row. And that, my friends, is unprecedented. And that, my friends, puts you at a level and an echelon, the likes of which we have never uh, never seen. So there is something for Vladko and for this group of women, uh, whatever, whatever ones continue, to really look at and kind of grasp. And as we've seen before, a U.S. women's national team that has something to prove can be a formidable force. So let's hope that they use this failure that happened in the Olympics to drive them on to another World Cup in, uh, in 2023. All right, anything else uh, from a women's uh, national team perspective, by the way? By the way, oh, we should say congratulations to Canada, okay? Absolutely. Uh, congratulations to Canada. It was wonderful to see not just Canada, but uh, you know, Christine Sinclair and everything that she has meant to the game and to that country 
and you know always kind of being third and fourth and and never being there and to get uh, to get that moment it was without a doubt the best worst penalty kick situation that I have ever <laughs> seen in my life um, but it was great drama and uh, as I said congratulations uh, to Canada anything else Mossy uh, that's it on the women uh, all right let's uh, let's shift over to the men I will be honest with you okay um, I don't watch a lot of men's Olympic soccer as we know it's under 23. And this year, it's a strange year, so it's under 24 at the time of the Olympics, and you get the three overaged players. Um, Mossy, your team, when I talk about your team, I mean uh, the Brazil team, certainly were one of the favorites and certainly responded. And give a, give a general synopsis on, on how this went and was this ultimately a, a success um, or a failure when it comes to uh, Brazil or anybody else out there. Yeah, look, I, I totally get where you're coming from. Uh, men's Olympic soccer is very flawed. It could be a lot better than it is, but I, I like it. Uh, I think enough countries take it seriously that uh, the quality is is decent enough. And because it's uh, the Olympics, it, it sort of adds meaning to it. And, and when you reach the climactic matches, it, there, there's plenty of drama. And, you know, listen, I've said this before, different countries uh, take comp- approach competitions differently. It doesn't mean one's right and one's wrong. And for whatever reason, Brazil has always taken the Olympics seriously. Uh, Brazilian stars like to play in the Olympics. Uh, Romario played in it in 88, was the, the top scorer. Brazil won the silver medal. And then he fought to play again as an overage player in 96 and 2000, was furious he didn't get picked. Ronaldo, Rivaldo, and Roberto Carlos all played in 96 in the United States. Amazingly enough, that Brazil team had to settle for a bronze. Uh, Ronaldinho played as an under-23 player in 2000 and then as an overage player in 2008. Neymar played as an under-23 player in 2012 and then as an overage player in 2016 and won the gold medal. And 38-year-old Danny Alves, the most decorated player in soccer history, uh, fought to play in these Olympics and, and captained the team. And, and you could see was was very moved by winning the gold medal, was in tears at the end of the game. Uh, Brazil beat Spain in the final to win an extra time, which was actually a terrific game. Um, so yeah, listen, it's, and Brazil has won more, uh, men's soccer medals than any other country, seven, they've been in the last three finals and won the last two gold medals. So it's something they've, they've taken seriously. They've been rewarded for it. And, and, and listen, I mean, it is what it is. Not everybody's going to feel the same way about it. And so, and I get that. I, I think Olympic soccer is very flawed. I would never, just because yeah, my yeah. team won, I, mean, I would never. And there's nothing, there's nothing the players can do about it. There's nothing yeah. that we can do about it. But when you preface everything by saying, well, you know, certain countries and cultures take it seriously and certain don't. We never say that about a World Cup, which is why there's never any excuses and why all of that attention is driven towards the World Cup. And by the way, you know, one of the things that FIFA has guarded against is having the Olympics become just another World Cup. And that's because of some of the restrictions uh, that have happened. And there's even people that have talked about making the women's uh, side uh, in, in the same way, be an under 23 uh, tournament going forward to kind of separate it out, especially if you're going to build uh, build the world the World Cup. It was fun. It was fun to see Danny Alves and and I love I love nations that do take it seriously. I love nations that do take it seriously, not just for the pride and the the opportunity to to win something at a at a, at a national in an international level, but also for you know the opportunity and the development aspect of it to to use this because. You know, in the international level, you don't get a lot of opportunities to go through tournaments and go through big tournaments and stuff and stuff like that. So that was that was fun. That was fun to see. Congratulations. And I don't think that any of the players or, or that team says, all right, we're the you know, we're the kings of the world now that, that we've won. It. I think that there is 
an understanding and a perspective that comes with it. But it's in no way should it diminish the accomplishment of you know, winning a goal for your country, especially for a country that, like you said, does take it seriously and does val- value it. So congratulations to you, Mossy, and congratulations to the team. Anything that came out of it that you want to hit before we go? Yeah, a couple more Brazil thoughts before we transition to Mexico. Um, okay. uh, two players, two young players that that I think uh, could really help the senior team that, who shine in this tournament, I think could really help the senior team are this midfielder, Bruno Guimarães, who would presumably take Fred's spot, which, you know, I'm searching for a replacement there. <laughs> God forbid, right? And then, and then this uh, striker, Mateus Cunha, uh, who scored in the final, uh, who I like very much. And, you know, we certainly saw in the Copa America that Brazil need to find somebody to put the ball in the back of the net. So he, mm-hmm. he could be an interesting option moving forward. And Danny Alves at 38 showed that he's still Brazil's best right back uh, by a mile. To be fair, he was called up for the Copa America and had to pull out because of an injury, but recovered in time to play in the Olympics. So he wants to play in the next World Cup. He'll be 39, but I, I wouldn't doubt him. It's, it's 16 months away. We'll see how his body holds up. But uh, but that would be something because, you know, that is now the one trophy he's missing. I said he's the most decorated right. player in right. soccer history. Now, I do want to make one one comment about that. Uh, in, 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 in touting Danny Alves's amazing resume and how many trophies he won, I noticed everybody, when it came to Danny Alves, counted the two Confederations Cups he's won. But if you go back to the uh, – before and after the Copa America final, I heard everybody say that Neymar has never won an international title for Brazil. So both those things can't be true. I mean, you can't only count the Confederations Cup when, it, when it's convenient, when it's a player you like whose achievements you want to enhance, and then not count it when it's a player you don't like whose achievements you want to diminish. Well, I don't think and, that that's and, quite what happened. I think that they were <laughs> I think they were listing out all of the awards and accolades that this player had won. They weren't listing out all the internet major trophies that they had won. That, that happens, by the way, with the Community Shield as well, which was played this past weekend. Lesser oh, don't Manchester get me City. started on this, but, uh, but, the Community you know, Shield. When Sir Alex Ferguson retires and everybody wants to tout what an amazing career he had at United and how many trophies he won, they included all the Community Shields. But then you see with other teams that people don't like, and we, when we start talking about how many trophies they've won, the Community Shields don't count. So it, it, people have a habit sometimes of, of you know being inconsistent in the way they, they, they measure these it's, things. It's one game, right? I mean, why should that count? I don't understand that one at all. That's right. We should just every week there should be a trophy that the winner gets, and then you could just keep amassing trophies as you go through the uh, the team. Just give it a name. But so so Brazil beat Spain uh, in the final, so Spain uh, claimed the silver medal, and and Mexico lost to Brazil in the semis. Uh, they then beat host nation Japan in the bronze medal game and, and finished with the bronze. And I do want to say, had we done a podcast last week on the heels of that. Uh, Gold Cup final. I know Mexico fans were sick to their stomach losing two finals to the U.S. in the same summer, but I was actually going to try to cheer them up by talking up their Olympic team because I was very pr- impressed with what I saw from this team. I think there's several players here that that could help the senior team in the octagonal. Uh, first of all, uh, just looking big picture, Mexico, it does appear like Raul Jimenez is on the road to recovery. And plus, you know, Chucky Lozano, who got injured 10 minutes into the Gold Cup, will be back. So, uh, you know, you add, you take the team from the Gold Cup and you add Raul Jimenez and Chucky Lozano to that attack. Obviously, it's whole different proposition, but even taking from this Olympic team, I love the center back Cesar Montes, uh, Sebastian Cordova and Charlie Rodriguez in the midfield, Diego Linez who scored against the U.S. in the Nations League final. So help is on the way. There were some players on this Olympic team that I think are really going to help the senior team and you get Jimenez and Lozano healthy. So all of a sudden Mexico will be in business again. So I know they're pretty down in the dumps right now. We'll talk about the Gulf Cup in a, in a bit, but I, I actually think Mexico's future is pretty bright as well. And, and I, I like the fact that they didn't get rid of Tata because to me, that would have been a, a, a dumb move to make with the octagonal right around the corner. So uh, I would move forward with Tata 
and trust that these young players coming up are going to provide a boost. All right. Well, speaking of, uh, of Mexico and qualification and the U.S. Uh, national team, as you mentioned, we're going to talk about uh, all the goings on this summer, kind of put a bow on the, uh, the Gold Cup that we didn't get to do uh, last week in our Ask Alexic Summit, which comes up right after this. So don't go anywhere. All right. Uh, we are back and it's time for Ask Alexi. And we've had some uh, plenty of audio questions over the last couple of weeks. And for those that don't know, um, we do have a podcast hotline, if you will. It's 657-549-2297. That's 657-549-2297. We get your questions each and every week. And each and every week we go through and pick out a few. And we still do have the uh, traditional way of just asking, asking questions. You use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there on all the old social media platforms. And we uh, pick a few of them uh, uh, going forward. Uh, before we get into um, uh, the, the, uh, the, the questions here, just, just in general, okay, uh, when it comes to the gold cup from uh, from last week and then we're going to get to a, a question from i think bill in indiana all right big bad bill from uh from indiana who had a mea culpa if i uh if, if i remember uh correctly uh, in his message that he left uh a a, a the post game uh, for those that didn't uh, watch or for those that, that did watch, uh, yours truly uh, had kind of a moment there. Okay, <laughs> Lots of emotion, lots of emotion when it comes to the U.S. Uh, winning the, uh, the Gold Cup. Um, I know that I can be cynical. I know that I can be jaded. I know that I can be grouchy. I know that I can be an asshole. Okay? About soccer and about life and i was really surprised in the way that it hit me in that moment when that final whistle blew and the u.s had beaten uh, mexico in front of sixty thousand people fifty nine thousand of them cheering for the, uh, for mexico in las vegas in that type of an uh, environment I, I do think that the you know I, I i did i got i got choked up about it and i do think a lot of it had absolutely nothing to do with soccer uh, i'm going to be honest with you okay i've seen the us do well i've seen the us win and yes i do I wear my heart on my sleeve and i do have an emotional connection to this us soccer team doing well men's women's coed naked really doesn't uh, doesn't matter i think that the situation and certainly life over the last couple of years for all of us around the world. I do think that that probably played a part. Keep in mind, we were in a, a stadium, in a packed stadium, something that I hadn't been at in a long time. And I didn't realize how much I missed it. So we're already kind of in a, an emotional frenzied uh, type of state. And look, I know it, it might be sappy, to some, but it was just an expression uh, in feeling a wonderful moment and experiencing a moment of, of pure joy. And, and not just in my U.S. team winning, but in my country. And, you know, we haven't had a lot of opportunity to do that. And all of the stuff that we have gone through, I think it just all kind of bubbled to the surface and, and came out. 
Um, I'll be honest, it was a little embarrassing. Um, I don't want to make a habit of uh, of that, but there was nothing we could do. We came on and uh, it's live television. That's just uh, uh, the way that it goes. Um, uh, it, it may or may not have proved to people, not that this was my <laughs> intention, that uh, I am I am actually a human being. And I do have uh, emotions out there when it comes to a lot of different uh, different things. Uh, but I, as I said, you know, sometimes we use sports as a looking glass. And sometimes the actual sport, in this case, kicking the ball and the winning and losing, is only part of what we are feeling. And so I think in that moment, as I said, you, you saw a reaction to just a pure moment of joy. And we've had so many of them. And I know we attach all sorts of things to moments. And I wasn't attaching anything else other, as I said, than being really, really happy for this particular team, what they did, and for my country watching this team do what they did. Um, All right, let's go to uh, Bill in Indiana, because I know he, as I said, is apologizing profusely for something that he had uh, asked us in a previous call. So, Bill from Indiana, what do you have to say? Hey, Alexi. Hey, Mossy. This is Bill from Indiana, a.k.a. Jim from Kalamazoo. You called me last week because I forgot to leave my name. I called uh, kind of saying that Alexi was wrong for saying that we all should want and hope for and expect a U.S.-Mexico final, and I would just like to officially apologize and retract that statement after watching that amazing game last night realizing that, you know, the excitement, the energy, the emotion that was there because of that wouldn't have been if it were the U.S. doing the same thing against Jamaica or Honduras, someone else. Uh, so I will for now on hope for a U.S. versus Mexico final in every Gold Cup going forward. All right. Thanks. Bye. All right, Bill. Uh, no need. No need at all. Um, we've all been wrong before, but yes, I think that you have recognized correctly that I was absolutely correct in uh, in hoping and praying for this matchup of U.S.-Mexico, and it only gets bigger and better. And by the way, there are more coming, and there are more coming later on. And you know, as I said in the, in the post game, I know it's just a soccer game, and I know it's just a gold cup, and there will be bigger and more important moments when it comes to U.S.-Mexico coming uh, going forward. But I think that what you saw and what you felt is where my hope for that final was. And, you know, it doesn't mean that you can't have great games against others, but this is our major rival and our major competitor. And in that type of moment, it was awesome. And you want more of it. And you got to be careful not to have too much of a good thing. But, you know, the next time we see this is going to be in uh, in qualifying. And that's a different type of scenario than a, uh, a tournament setting. But, you know, now I think you understand having seen that and now having seen it twice over the summer, how awesome U.S.-Mexico is and why I say it is the greatest rivalry in international soccer. And I will fight you on that. Uh, Mossy, anything uh, with regards to Bill in Indiana there, uh, re- recognizing and uh, being very, very clear that he made a mistake? Uh, apology accepted, Bill. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, I mean, we, we didn't really get a chance last week to put a ribbon on this Gold Cup for the U.S. I, I apologize. I stepped on the Mexico stuff in the rundown in the previous segment, so we could just focus on the U.S. here unless no, no, you have no, something no, to say no. about Mexico. Yeah, look, it's it's uh, amazing, amazing achievement uh, to, to win uh, the Gold Cup with with the squad they sent. Uh, it, you know, we could get into A, B, T, B team, whatever, but it, the bottom line is Mexico had closer to their uh, full strength and they had much greater motivation because of what happened with the Nations League and the U.S. still beat them in a stadium that, I mean, you were there, you can speak to this, was I'm sure 95% uh, yep. Mexico fans. So it's an incredible victory for the U.S., a fantastic summer. In terms of uh, individual success stories, I do think they're mainly at the back. Guys like Matt Turner, Miles Robinson, James Sands. I mean, the first two guys I just mentioned, Matt Turner and Miles Robinson, I think are candidates to start the first octagonal game. They were that impressive in that tournament. James Sands, maybe more from a depth perspective, his versatility can play a couple different positions. But when you start working your way farther up the field, then uh, from an individual standpoint, uh, I think you'd be hard pressed to find really great success stories. And and you do come upon the one big failure of this tournament, which I would say was Daryl DK, a guy who we all wanted to see uh, perform yep. in such a way where he would come out of this as the clear cut starting center forward. That did not happen. If anything, he, he maybe dropped a couple of spots in the depth chart. So that one was the one negative of this tournament, but it was offset by, like I said, some of the success stories at the back. I was blown away by how well Miles Robinson played. Kellen Acosta too in the midfield. The U.S. now has a very dependable backup for Tyler Adams at that number six position. So I think you not only do you win a trophy, beat Mexico in a final, but I think Greg Berhalter comes out of this feeling better about the overall talent pool and the depth he has going into the octagonal. Yeah, I, I, to 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 um, to your point in the back, uh, I think that Matt Turner right now there is a real debate and legitimate debate to have as to who the number one goalkeeper is right now. I think in Greg Berhalter's mind um, that he's still going to go with Zach Steffen. Zach Ste- actually played uh, well over the weekend in the uh, in the Shields game, uh, and so he was able to start for Man City. But we know he is not the number one. Uh, you know, and as, as I said before, that's all fine and well, but I just want my goalkeeper to save the ball. I mean, I don't think anybody came out uh, better from the tournament than uh, than Matt Turner. And there's a real competition. And this was this was great. This was great for all of the players that weren't there, and this was great for all the players that were there. Uh, yes, Robinson, I think is going to be in the mix. Although I think if Zimmerman is healthy, he's still even having you know gone out early in the tournament is going to be a possible pairing for uh, Brooks going forward. Uh, so I think that's uh, good. You mentioned Sands, who will certainly uh, certainly be there. Yeah, the big the big glaring problem is nobody came out and grabbed a hold of that spot uh, that spot up top. Hoppy, I'm still not convinced is the answer. He does some interesting things, and I think he will be part of the conversation. But I'm still not convinced that he's there. If if Hoppy were playing, you know, pick your MLS team, I'm not sure that anybody would even be uh, even be talking uh, about him. But he does do some interesting interesting things. Uh, we know what Jossie Zard is is. We know what Jossie Zard is uh, isn't. Daryl DK did not grab a hold of that opportunity, but I'm not ready to give up on him yet. We mentioned Josh Sargent and the things that are going on there. I do think that there's some interesting things. You know, for example, someone like um, like Christian Roldan. I think he's going to be in the mix because I think he can provide some interesting things coming off the bench and change the the. Uh, the dynamics and the dimension of a game as we saw him do in the gold cup where, you know, look, he's not a world beater or anything, but he just, he has something. And I think Greg Berhalter and his staff will recognize those, uh, those types of things. But this is, this is so fascinating now because when Greg Berhalter three weeks from now, knock on wood, everybody's healthy. So he can pick whoever he wants. 
what is that group going to look like? What is that 22, 23 players going to look like? And then what is that ultimate starting 11 against Canada in Nashville? It's going to be fascinating to see. And there's going to be a lot of people arguing. You mentioned Kellen Acosta. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if he's one of the, uh, the players in the midfield. But there's so many different options. And that's why I say this is so good for those players that were in Nations League. They had their moment, all right? And they were looked upon as the A-team, okay? Then this B, C, D, depending on who you ask, team comes in. And they kick ass, and they have their moment. And in doing so, they put pressure on that A-team when they come in. You're not coming back as the conquering hero. You're not strutting in and saying, okay, the A-team is here. Because this, what, what this B-C team did is more impressive than what happened in the, uh, in the Nations League. And it will put pressure on. Zach Steffen, you got Mac Turner breathing down your neck, and you know that if Zach Steffen is the as a starting goalkeeper, the minute that he lets a goal in, people are going to turn around and look at Matt Turner and going to say, "What if that guy was in goal?" Now that's not necessarily fair, but that's actually a good thing to have to have that type of competition going on for a number of different positions. And I do think that that has happened. Matt Turner again, the way he framed it after the game was, "There's not an A B C D team. This is all one team." A little simplistic, okay? A little a little naive. We all understand that might not totally be the case. But I do think that this group in the Gold Cup, they feel that that is the case. And they have forced themselves into the conversation. And it is the best thing that could possibly have happened to your Christian Pulisic, Zach Steffens, Weston McKinney's, uh, Tyler Adams, Serginio Dess, all of those players that now when they strut back into camp, okay, they know that there are people. That if you don't do your job, people say, yeah, but look what happened in the Gold Cup. Maybe, those, maybe that was the A-team. Look, I, I, these are all, as Tata Martino says, and as you mentioned, Tata continues on, champagne, uh, champagne problems. Um, but, you know, this A-B type of uh, conversation was always going to happen. I think it's simplistic, and I, as I said at the beginning of the tournament, I think it's disrespectful, but it doesn't, it doesn't bother me. It's, a, it's, it, it's expected. It's always going to happen because of our natural inclination to differentiate and judge this U.S. men's national team talent relative to where they play or what they're resume is or how much money they're making or, or, or all the different things that, that go, go into it. But when that whistle blows against Canada in, in Nashville, all of that goes out the window. Greg Burhalter has to get the best collection of 11 players on the field, regardless of, uh, of where, they, uh, where they play. And that, to me, is going to be fascinating. And I think there's going to be a lot of disagreement and healthy debate as to what that best 11 ultimately is. Because let's be honest, we haven't had a lot of years where there has been a whole lot of debate about what that best uh, best 11 is. All right, should we go to uh, someone else? You good with that, Mossy? Yep. All right, I think we've uh, put a bow on what has been a wonderful summer when it comes to uh, the Gold Cup. Congratulations to Greg Berhalter. Congratulations to both the teams, the Nations League team and this Gold Cup team for, for what they did. And in doing so... They made us believe again, and I think it is right and fair for us to believe. But Janet Jackson, what have you done for me lately? So three weeks from now. Um, okay, David from Nashville, speaking of Nashville, also sent in a question. And uh, I think he wants to know something about what if Greg Berhalter wasn't the coach? Let's hear what he has to say. Hey, Alexi. Hey, Mossy. This is uh, David from Nashville, and uh, I am calling about the U.S men's national team coach. Uh, Alexi, I'm guessing from your time as general manager, you're used to keeping the, uh, the idea of keeping the proverbial list of, of coaches in your back pocket for when if you need them. 
Uh, last few episodes, you guys have both talked about the, the Supporter Shields race and all the coaches that are leading the way there. So my question is, if, if uh, Greg Bearhalter weren't able to be the coach for whatever reason in the near future, right now, who, who's on that list? Who's at the top and, and why? Thanks. Enjoy your show, guys. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Um, well, look, I don't think that Greg Berhalter is going uh, anyplace anytime soon. And I do think that, you know, there, there are those that look at Greg Berhalter in a different way after this summer. And I'll get to your question about, you know, potential uh, replacements. Um, and, and I'm going over here because I know somebody had asked me over on Twitter, Jeff Hayes, a uh, good friend, Jeffrey uh, Hayes, had asked and said, I'm not yet admitting that I was wrong about Burhalter, but surely can't argue I was right based on current evidence. Uh, this was after the Gold Cup win. Joyous for the team. Hope it's the first of many moments of pride. And I do think that Greg Burhalter is one of the big winners of this, uh, this summer. I mean, Jeff, to, to your point, by the way, it's not about re- being right or wrong. Ultimately, any you know, assessment of Greg Burhalter will be relative to World Cup and World Cup qualifying, which is, uh, which is coming. And this summer was wonderful, but it means nothing without that World Cup uh, success. And by the way, Greg Berhalter knows this better than uh, anyone. And that's, you know, the octagonal is coming. Now, let's say that Greg Berhalter said, I don't want to do this anymore. And, and or let's say that uh, the powers that be in Ernie Stewart and Brian McBride said, up, oh, we need to make a change. This, this is not good enough this summer. I don't know. Um, who, who would be there? I mean, I think that, you know, part of what Greg Berhalter and part of the criticism of Greg Berhalter has been over the years is that, as I said, he's, he's too young. Um, he's just a glorified MLS coach. Uh, the only reason he got his job was because uh, of nepotism and his brother working at the Federation. He's not Tata Martino. He's not um, Jesse Marsh. I think Jesse Marsh will automatically fly to the top of the list and probably is the, at the top of the list right now, given what he, what he is doing. Uh, you'll have people like um, you know, I'm uh, Peter Vermes. I, I think you'll have people like, um, you know, I mentioned Tata Martino. I think that that he was in the mix before, depending on how it goes. I think there is still a cachet and a and a value to him. Um, you know, then you'll have people like uh, like Roberto Martinez. Uh, or, you know, someone like him that I think is a potential uh, potential going forward. He understands. America. He's worked in America, worked on television. Obviously, he's got a, a, a resume and has coached internationally and club. You know, so those are some of them. Mossy, anybody pop into your mind with, with regards to potential uh, coaches going forward in the future? Well, uh, just to throw a couple of MLS guys out there, you mentioned Vermes, but I, I'm enamored of Greg Vanny. I think he's a terrific coach. Mm-hmm. And, and also uh, Jim Curtin, I like a lot. Uh, do either those two guys scream national team to you? Uh, I still think that Jim Curtin... I'd like to see him in a different scenario. Um, you know, you know that's why I like, you know, someone like Caleb Porter. I've seen him in different circumstances and scenarios, and I think that that's important because I, I, and and you know that's why Peter Vermes. I'd also like to see him someplace else too. I mean, he's done a wonderful job, and I just look, and maybe Peter Vermes is more of a technical director type of uh, situation. But yeah, I mean, look, I think Jim Curtin is well on his way, and but I will reserve. I think he's. I think he right now has been a great coach, but I will reserve more judgment until I actually see him in a different type of, uh, type of environment. Uh, Greg Vanny, I mean, look, he, he's got to be up for coach of the year already with what has happened in the turnaround at the Los Angeles Galaxy. And look, it's not, it's just like he's coming in and 
you know, doesn't have a team or, or uh, resources to do it, but you still got to make the choices and what he has done and where he has gotten this team very, very quickly back to uh, not just functioning, but uh, competitive and one of, the, one of the best teams in the league. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Greg Vanny will be in that mix. It'll be, it'll, it would be interesting if that were to happen. The other question when it comes to Greg Burhalter and the potential is we know that multiple cycles don't always work. If it continues to go well for Greg Berhalter, you know, we talked about this summer, let's say that they breeze through qualifying, let's say they get to the World Cup and do well. Do you say, all right, we are on this pathway to 2026? Because that's really the holy grail for a lot of these coaches. I mean, whoever is coach in 2026, that's a whole nother level of attention and opportunity. Do you say, oh, let's continue on? Or do you look at history and say multiple cycles have not been good? Or do you risk throwing the baby out with the bathwater? I don't know. I don't know what's, uh, what, what is going to happen. And I guess it all is going to depend on what level of success he has through qualifying and then more importantly, when he gets to Qatar next, uh, next November. All right. I think we got one more question here, right? Uh, Eric from Detroit, from my hometown, on young talent emerging right now. Okay, let's hear what Eric has to say. Alexi, Mossy, uh, this is Eric from Detroit. Uh, so you don't have to make up a name like, you know, uh, Jim from Kalamazoo or anything. Um, my question this week is watching all the young talent that's been on the field over this summer, seeing all the players from all the different countries and all the different international competitions. Um, my question to you guys is who, what young player really excites you guys for the future? Like who are you of that, man, you can't wait to see this guy grow and see what he does five to ten years down the road. I actually have a couple that uh, that I'm thinking of. Um, one is Erling Holland, obviously at Dortmund. Even though I'm a Bayern fan, I still appreciate what he does and what he's going to do. And the other, honestly, is I'm excited to see what happens with Alfonso Davies. Um, I mean, I think he is a phenomenal player. I know he's had some setbacks this last year with a few knocks here and there. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Um, thanks again for everything you guys do. Um, the podcast, uh, the, the t- live Twitter and, and everything that you're doing. But uh, keep up the good work, guys. Uh, we appreciate it. All right. Oh, my goodness. All right. Young talent emerging. And I think, he, you know, he's talking about um, talent around the world. Uh, which, which I mean, we've already talked about it. You know, some of that talent on it, and you know, I think he mentioned uh, Erlen Holland and Alfonso Davies, and absolutely, what you know, where where do they go? I think Alfonso Davies, you know, where do you go from Bayern Munich, right? Um, or do you just play for the next ten years at Bayern Munich and become, and in that time, be one of their greatest players ever and one of their greatest defenders ever, and continue to be one of the great left backs in the world, which is what he is right now. Um, or does, is there a move for him? Because we know that when it comes to Holland, there is a move. And we already talked about whether it's coming now, whether it's coming a year from now. And I think that's where the real excitement and curiosity and celebration is going to be because we, we see this talent. But when it's up on that next, quote unquote, next level, I think that's going to be interesting. Who, who stands out to you uh, when it comes to some young players? Well, look, he framed it talking about international tournaments this summer and who stood out. And a player mm-hmm. who I think um, La Liga followers were already familiar with, but he really showcased himself this summer, is Pedri, this young midfielder for Spain who uh, played just an absurd amount of games uh, uh, this year because he, he 
emerged as a, a regular starter for Barcelona. He played virtually every game last season for Barcelona, even though he was a teenager, and then started for Spain at the Euros, played a lot of minutes in that tournament, and then played in the Olympics as well, So, uh, where Spain got all the way to the finals. So uh, he's played 70-some-odd games uh, really this season for club and country, if you take it from the start of the 2021 campaign through the end of these Olympics. So, I mean, but but he's very talented. There have been some Iniesta comparisons. You know, a player who didn't didn't shine uh, this summer because his manager didn't let him, but who I, I continue to love is Jaden Sancho. And I'm so intrigued to see uh, what he's going to do in the Premier League now with Manchester United. Uh, I mean, he mentioned Holland there. I almost feel like Mbappe and Holland, you separate out from this conversation. They're, they're such givens at this point that, you know, they, I mean, those two are going to dominate the next decade. So, uh, but yeah, those are some of the other guys I would, I would look at. And, you know, and then from a U.S. perspective, you know, all the, the it's not the usual suspects, but it's the people that we've been talking about, your Buzios uh, and uh, uh, Tessmans and... Um, Brendan Aronson, who continues on, and even the next Aronson, and Paxton, Palm Nicole, and, and you know these types of, of of players, and you know the real pathway that is emerging, and the marketplace that is opening up for young uh, American talent out there, and it's great to see. Uh, it it makes me very very happy that that there are so many opportunities now being afforded to some of these young players and players that really haven't done anything yet. And that's a, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. You shouldn't have to start a World Cup like I did in order to have uh, bigger opportunities when it comes to a, a club situation. Uh, I know we're not going to really delve into MLS uh, this week, but one player I do want to mention because we caught some flack a couple weeks ago for not mentioning him, uh, and, and rightly so. We should have mentioned him as Ricardo Pepe, this uh, center forward for FC Dallas, who is a big reason why they've shot up the standings. They're now just two points out of a playoff spot. They're the hottest team in the league. Um, and and he's he's just phenomenal. He, he scored in, in a recent win over the Galaxy. He became the youngest player ever to score an MLS hat trick. Uh, and, and he's a great prospect at a position, as we talked about, where the U.S. could could use somebody emerging. But he's also eligible for Mexico, so that's going to turn into one of those tug of wars. So keep an eye on that. But, yeah, if we're talking about a, a young player here playing in MLS, who, who I absolutely love, he would be one for sure. Yeah, I mean, we wanted to tie up some bows here when it came to this uh, this week's podcast. And, you know, there was, I mean, there was like 25 MLS games. We are in the dog days of summer when it comes to Major League Soccer. And I, I, at one point, I think I had six different screens up on my computer when it came to watching soccer. And I'm, I'm here for it. I love it. Uh, I love watching it. But there's a lot of MLS going on right now. We have MLS uh, All-Star 2, which we'll be talking a whole lot about as we get closer to it. Uh, that happens on August uh, 25th, and we are actually airing that. So we're going to have all sorts of programming around that, including this, the, uh, the skills challenge the day before and all that. But, you know, the All-Star teams have started to come out and uh, that whole debate as to who is the who are the All-Stars uh, for the people that don't know you MLS all-stars are playing against um league mx all-stars so it's really going to be a fun type of format going forward we didn't do a whole lot of mls this week but you can forgive us well i should say i attended an mls uh game last night uh, i mentioned i'm in fort lauderdale so i went to drive pink stadium to uh, check out inter miami against nashville uh wow. terrific game a lot of fun uh well you saw a complete rarity then my friend you <laughs> saw an actual win from inter miami at home wow you know, I, I buried uh, Phil Neville in the pot a couple weeks ago, but they, they played better since then, uh, and then they played well in this game. They deserved the three points. They fell behind early in the second half. C.J. Sapong scored for Nashville, but then Higuain, Gonzalo Higuain equalizes. Uh, his brother comes on and gave them a nice spark, and then uh, Vasilev uh, with a late header uh, to win it. So, 
so yeah, it was an enjoyable time. Uh, Inter Miami. David Beckham's Inter Miami. David uh, Beckham's Inter Miami. I mean, look, we could we could do two hours on all the MLS stuff that that, that happens, but you know, on this on this pod, we we meander and we move around and uh, we try to give you a little, you know. Tapas, if you will, <laughs> when it comes to a lot of the subjects, and you know, in a week where the messy thing came uh, came out, obviously we were right to spend a lot of time on uh, on that, and we did want to kind of wrap up uh, what had happened uh, over the summer. We'll be back to plenty of MLS stuff there, and so if you're bent out of shape that Mossy didn't mention your team or your player when it comes to uh, MLS, get in line, get in line, uh, Mossy. Anything else? The well, last last thing I want to mention is you know you throw out the term Wally Pipped a lot. Yes, uh, I do. Well, because I learned it from you. Yeah, and we could have that scenario on the pod this week because our regular producer, Jeff Hernandez, is out. And so his number two, Luis Aguilar, who was also the number two to Alex Dowd before that. So th- this was his big opportunity. It reminds me of in The Sopranos when uh, Uncle Junior shot Tony and Silvio Dante uh, finally got to be the man. Uh, so uh, Luis Aguilar was our lead producer this week. How do you think he fared? I just hope that he was able to press record. I mean, that's that's basically my fear each and every week. And so now that we have number two stepping up, I mean, you had one job. So we'll, we're going to find out yeah. when we're done with this. He sent us the rundown, you know, very early. So we had plenty of time to digest it before the start of the pod. And by that, I mean five <laughs> minutes before. But, you know, we roll with the punches. We roll with the punches. Yes, we do. All right. We're going to roll uh, to another quick break. And when we come back, we'll close out this show with uh, my one for the road. Don't go anywhere. All right, we are back, and it's the end of the pod. And at the end of each and every pod, as you know, we, I give you my one for the road. Um, well, uh, you know, I mentioned uh, in the last segment about you know how how joyous it was for me and those of us that were fortunate to uh, to go to Las Vegas for the final of the Gold Cup and to just to be in that what is become a rarefied type of environment, a full stadium, everybody screaming and yelling, having a good time. And to hear that soundtrack that uh, unfortunately unfortunately has not been there or has been replaced by a canned version of it uh, for the last couple of years. It was just, it was just wonderful. Uh, as is the case, all sorts of different people uh, at this uh at this function, Johnny Infantino and Victor Montaliani, the head of uh, head of CONCACAF, and so many people uh, that were there, including uh, one of my favorite people in the world, and that is uh, Bora Milutinovic. And you will have heard at, at different times, if you listen to this podcast, me talk about Bora. And uh, for those that don't know, he uh, was our coach, the U.S. men's national team coach uh, for the 1994 World Cup, a summer and a World Cup and a moment that, as I've said many, many times, completely changed my life. And, you know, it's rare that you get to see people and thank people for changing your life. Well, as is the case, because Bora is this, as I've said before, this combination of Yoda and Yogi Berra and Chauncey Gardner from uh, the movie Being There in that he just shows up in different places or Zelig, depending on who you want to go with, but he just shows up constantly. He doesn't have credentials other than he is Bora and he really hasn't changed in the way that he looks. And so I was so happy when I walked into, I was doing an interview with, um, with Victor Montaliani, the head of CONCACAF, myself and Rob Stone, and we walked into the setup and there was Bora just, just standing there. And, you know, this is a man that, that, as I said, was so important 
in giving me opportunities. And look, there were other players. And this goes back to, you know, coaches. Coaches have their guys. Coaches have their favorites. Um, and to have someone like that in your life that at a crucial part of your life believed in you uh, continually and championed you, uh, that's, that's pretty special. And so it was wonderful to see him, to reminisce, but also to thank him for giving me that opportunity and to recognize in that moment how fortunate I was to be there in that moment. And, you know, he now works for Qatar, just another national team that he has worked for along the way. And this is a guy who's coached multiple teams in the World Cup when it comes to Mexico and, and, and Costa Rica and China and uh, Nigeria and obviously uh, the U.S. Uh, it's amazing the, the world in which he lives in and the life that he has lived. And, you know, we talked about uh, old times. He's got a, a mind like a steel trap. He remembers absolutely everything. I mean, he brought up a, a game even before I was with him we were talking about the Olympics earlier, when he had looked at the Olympic team, the U.S. Olympic team in 1990, well, it was the 92 Olympic team, but I think he had been scouting us in 1991. And he brought up the point of how he had seen things in myself and others who then matriculated up to the full national team. And so he was tracking, and it was in the context of a, of a conversation about some of the wasted opportunities, and obviously the men not having the opportunity to go to this uh, this Olympics. But you know, all in all, I, I just I wanted to make a special mention of him because he is such an important person in my life. And we all have these these different people in our lives, teachers, coaches, mentors, whoever it ends up being. Well, I like to think that we all have them. Not everybody has them. But if you are fortunate enough to have them, um, just make sure that they realize how important they are, because I doubt any of them ever do it for the attention or the, the accolades or anything like that or the recognition or the, or the gratitude. But I can tell you that it goes, it goes a long way and it means a tremendous amount to those that take incredible pride for the successes that you have and the, the small or big part that they played in those successes. So thank you, Bora. Thank you for everything that you, uh, that you gave me and that you have given to the sport, whether it's American soccer uh, and you did so much and you've gone on to give to so many pe people and so many opportunities uh, out there. Um, Mossy, anything before we go? That's it. Well, my best uh, to your parents down there, Mossy. Enjoy the uh, the last uh, few hours and days that you have down there and get back home because the summer of soccer uh, rolls on. Let's be honest. Our summer of soccer never ends. There is always another, there's always another game. As I said, we'll be rolling right into continued MLS and the MLS all-star game. As we continue on, the European seasons are upon us as we, uh, as we speak. So that's a good thing. And hopefully uh, we are rested physically and mentally and get ready to power on and through the rest of the summer and into the fall and into uh, a better time when it comes to on and off the field in 2021 leading up into 2022. Uh, don't forget to, uh, to download and to subscribe and to rate and to re review and do all of those things. We love you uh, and we thank you for doing that and uh, for bearing with us uh, over, the, uh, over the years and hanging out with us. Again, apologies for the lack of a, a pod last week, but I like to think that, uh, that you understand and uh, you will forgive us that. And so we tried to go over and 
button it all up on uh, this pod. We'll be back again the same time uh, next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Uh, you can get it at all the different platforms uh, out there. And we appreciate uh, all of your patronage, patronage excuse me, um, when it comes to the State of the Union podcast. We'll see you again next week. And until then, and as always, size the day. Yeah.